So our second Bible reading is taken from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1004. So Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Well, good morning, friends. For those who may not have met me, my name is Jack Day. I am normally part of our 9.30 service, but it is a great joy to be with you here as we get to open up the Word of God together. We have been working our way through Mark's Gospel for a few weeks, and I thought it'd be a good point to pause and have a little look back at what we have seen so far as the story of Jesus begins. Jesus crashes onto the scene in ancient Israel, announcing this new message, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. We've seen over the past few weeks how Jesus arrives gathering this new people. We've seen him go and tell fishermen to leave their nets. Last week we saw him tell Matthew, the tax collector, to come along for the ride as well. Different people from different walks of life all coming together as part of this new people that Jesus is gathering. And in the midst of all that, we've started to see conflict as well. There are those who are getting on board with Jesus' message and those who oppose it too. We've seen how Jesus is clashing with the religious leaders of his day, those scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who don't think Jesus has the right to forgive sins, all sorts of things going on. And as we come to this passage looking at this morning, which would be great to have open in front of you so you can follow along in Mark chapter 2, the big question we're arriving at is really this issue of old and new. As Jesus brings this new message to people grappling with old structures, old ways of relating to God, conflict is inevitable. How does this new thing that Jesus is bringing relate to the old that has gone before? That's what we get into as we come to Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. And it's a story that kicks off with a question. A question of all things about fasting. So let's have a look at that. Follow along with me, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting... Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And we start off with these two Jewish groups. You've got the the disciples of John, who is, of course, John the Baptist. And these are the new kids on the block, really. 
There's the, the people who've been out in the wilderness hearing John's message about the coming kingdom of God. John's disciples are this renewal movement among the Jewish people, doing something radical and, and at odds with those who've gone before. And on the other side, you have the Pharisees, who are part of the, the ruling elite. They are the, the establishment religious leaders there, milling around with the priests at the temple, the ones who are at the top of the Jewish hierarchy. And you have these two groups who are different in many ways, but oddly enough, the thing they have in common is this practice of fasting. They have these regular periods where they deny themselves food for a time to achieve some spiritual purpose. And that might be something that for you is just utterly unfamiliar. In the, in the West, in the modern church, it's not something that many of us are particularly familiar with. And it's worth pondering, where does that come from? Is this something that God told his people to do? And as you read back in the Old Testament, you do find on occasion God does command his people to participate in these fasts. There are a number of religious festivals throughout the Jewish calendar, the biggest being the Day of Atonement. And if you read Leviticus chapter 16, it talks about the people being called to practice this fast together. You see other times in the Old Testament where people practice fasting as this expression of, of grief and mourning. It's a, it's a picture of lament and sadness. There's a famous story in the book of Jonah where the people of the Assyrian city of Nineveh hear the message of Jonah and they immediately fall to their knees, they put ashes on their head and they fast. They abstain from food. They even want the cows to go without eating as an expression of their grief at their sin. So those are some of the things going on in the Old Testament. But in Jesus' day, the picture is even bigger than that. The Pharisees have gone far beyond what the Bible had said. Some of the Pharisees would fast not just a few times a year, but twice every week. And in the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells in Luke 18, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And that's really the picture of what fasting was for people in Jesus' day. It was this practice associated particularly with the super-religious, those who wanted to prove their piety, they wanted to to show to everyone that they were taking God extra seriously. Fasting was this practice to, to show your spiritual credentials. That's what the disciples of John and the Pharisees were doing. Word has gotten around, though, that there's this new religious group who don't fast. And that, of course, is the disciples of Jesus. And people are a little confused by this. They're saying, hang on, Jesus, your disciples aren't fasting? That seems a little weird. You guys don't take God that seriously then, I guess. This is a bit more of a casual, informal affair? Why is it that your disciples are not super religious like the others who are showing us their spiritual medal? That is the question that kicks us all off. Why are Jesus' disciples not fasting like everyone else? And straight away, Jesus responds with an answer. And the answer he gives is that it's not the right time for fasting. Let's have a look at what he says, verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. And as happens so often, Jesus doesn't exactly give you a straight answer and answers a question with a riddle. Here he gives us this this parable, this, this illustration talking about a wedding, of all things. And Jesus is saying is that what he is doing as he's arrived on earth is a little bit like a wedding, His disciples are the guests who've been invited along to the reception. Jesus himself is like the bridegroom who's getting married. And by saying this, Jesus is actually letting us in on a a window into the magnitude of what he is doing on earth. Because Jesus here channels much of the imagery coming out of the Old Testament where God says that one day he will be united to his people and love them 
like a husband who loves his wife. There's lots of places you can turn, but I thought it'd be good for us to see one of these passages together. So if you've got your Bible there, turn over to Isaiah chapter 62, which is on page 750, if you've got one of our red pew Bibles there. In these final chapters of the the book of the prophet Isaiah, we see these visions of how one day God will restore his people and, and be with them. And in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 and 5, we read this. No longer will they call you, the people, deserted. No longer will your name of the land be desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. Your land will be called Be'ulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young woman marries a young sorry, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. It's a wonderful picture of God's delight in his people as he draws near to them in this renewed, close, intimate relationship. And Jesus is saying that that is what is happening as he arrives on earth. This is momentous. Jesus' arrival is this time of new beginnings, this new relationship forged between God and his people. It is this wonderful time of joy and goodness. And that's what Jesus is getting at by talking about weddings. That's the point here. Weddings are happy. A wedding is a happy occasion. I was fortunate enough to get back to Sydney, Australia, where I'm from, a couple of months ago for my younger brother's wedding. My younger brother, Harry, got married about two months ago, and it was such a joy to be able to be there, even being you know, 11,000 miles away most of the time. The chance to go and celebrate this wonderful, happy time was great, to get to see my little brother standing at the front of church, looking down the aisle as his beautiful bride, Claire, walks into the building, smile across his face, tears of joy in his eyes, from there to the big party afterwards, bringing two families together to eat and drink and dance and celebrate. That's what we do at a wedding, isn't it? It's this, this forging of a new relationship that is good and wonderful and something worth rejoicing over. I mean, just to prove this point and underline it, the little gift that they gave away to guests at their wedding was this little thing. It's a, in Australia, we call this a stubby holder. I'm not sure if you have that vernacular in the UK, but, you know, something to cool your, your can of drink in. I'm proving all the worst stereotypes about Australians at the moment, aren't I? Anyway, they gave this away to all their guests, and it's printed with the words, Happy Days. And my last name is Day, as is my brother, so him and his bride are the days. They're the ha- it's a pun. You get it. But that's the point. It's, it, they're happy days, right? It's a wedding. We're happy. It's, a, it's an occasion of joy. That's what we do. Jesus is saying, How much more that the Lord himself has come to be the bridegroom to love his people and shower them in delight. That's the joyful ride that Jesus' disciples are being brought along for. So fasting, this symbolic act of sorrow, this this solemn picture of lament, of, of need, lack, want, Jesus is saying, it just doesn't fit the circumstances. When Jesus is here, it's not time to fast, it's time to feast. They're not fasting because the bridegroom is here and it is time to rejoice. At one level, this might sound like a simple point, but I think it's really worth pausing to ponder it. Because I wonder if your experience of Christianity matches up with the joy that Jesus is talking about here. Maybe for some of us that our experience, whether it's just the churches we have gone to or all the way we've been brought up, whatever it is, it may be that your experience of life in the church is one of serious solemnity, keeping rules, 
head down, make sure you avoid anything fun, serious, business as usual. I'm not saying there's no time to lament. There are plenty of times in life where we come to God with contrition, with sorrow because of our sin, all sorts of things, grief, suffering in the world, yes. But if you're prone to thinking that that is our default disposition because God is stern, that he is only ever angry, that his primary disposition towards us is one of being displeased, then hear what Jesus is saying. If you want to understand what he is like, what God thinks of you, imagine the bridegroom at the front of the church looking down the aisle towards his new bride with tears in his eyes, smile across his face, beaming. Because that is a snapshot of the delight, a little tiny glimpse of the joy that God has in his people. A tiny little taste of the joy and delight that God has towards you. Because that's the kind of joy and happiness that Jesus has arrived to bring. Along with all that, Jesus is also saying that the bridegroom won't always be here. In verse 20 again, Jesus envisions this time when fasting will be appropriate. Verse 20, by the, by the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So you see here, the problem is not fasting in itself, and that matters. We'll come back to that. Jesus isn't anti-fasting full stop, but what he's saying is that the issue is timing. Don't fast when it's time to feast. And the second thing you see there is this little hint, the first hint in Mark's gospel of what Jesus is going to face at the end. He knows that one day he will be taken away from his disciples, that he'll be dragged off and they'll flee from him. Later, Jesus will make it more explicit that he must go to Jerusalem and be handed over and mocked and beaten and killed on a cross. But for now, he just hints towards it. And it's so important that we note that, that Even from the beginning, Mark wants us to know Jesus was never taken by surprise in his death. Some would imagine that Jesus was this great leader who'd arrived and all his plans were dashed as he was killed on a cross. But it's just not the way the gospel writers tell the story at all. Jesus is in control. He he walks towards his death from the very beginning and goes towards it willingly. Because bringing the joy of this new relationship with God can only happen if the bridegroom will go through the time of mourning. All of that is ahead of us in Mark. For now, we've seen that Jesus has answered the question that was put to him. His disciples don't fast. Why? Because it's not the right time. The bridegroom's here. It's time to rejoice. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. And this is where he comes on to the truth, the bigger truth, which I think is crucial for us and has lasting relevance for, for all of us. Because the fact that Jesus goes on to say a little more before this conversation is over seems to suggest that fasting is not really the big deal here. Fasting is the question that arose, it's the presenting issue, but really it's just a symptom. It's a symptom of a deeper divide between this old way of doing things and a new way that Jesus is bringing. So we come here to the big issue of the old and the new. Jesus makes this point again in parables. We get these two pictures. First, the the patches and cloths, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. I don't have a lot of experience with textiles myself, but I take it you, like me, can grasp the basic point here. If you take the the piece of cloth that hasn't been shrunk and and you don't pre-shrink it, then it'll shrink in the wash and tear away from the hole that it was on and you have a bigger problem than you started with. Simple enough. 
The second picture is about wine. Verse 22, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This can be one of those points where we're just so unfamiliar with what Jesus is even talking about that it's hard to catch the point. But in Jesus' day, they didn't store wine in barrels or bottles. They had it in bags made of leather. And a new, freshly made skin would be soft and supple. So when you put the wine in and it fermented and expanded, the skin would stretch and expand with it. But if you took the old, worn-out wine skin, which has already stretched and gotten hard and brittle, when the wine ferments in that one and expands, there's no way left to move. So the skin bursts. Bye-bye wine. Bye-bye wine skin. What's the point, though? What is Jesus saying here? Like with all parables, one temptation for us can be to allegorize. We want to look for correspondence. Okay, Jesus is talking about this story. What details in the story match up with the details of the world he's in? So... Maybe it's Jesus is saying the Pharisees are the old wineskins and his message, the gospel, is the new wine. But if you pour the gospel into the Pharisees, they're going to explode or something. I don't think that. We can get carried away like that. A really important principle as we come to understand Jesus' parables, particularly when you have two parables side by side, the point that we're meant to get, the meaning, is usually the thing that those two have in common. And here the point is pretty simple. You can't mix the new and the old. They just don't go together. It doesn't work. We can multiply modern examples. So this morning at 9.30, I uh, gave the example of the, the CD and the Bluetooth speaker. The CD, I mean, old technology, right? This is what I grew up listening to, so it's hard for me to even believe that that's now old. I'm, I'm sure some of you would feel the same. But you want to listen to your audiobook on your new speaker, you try and put the CD in the speaker and... There's nowhere for it to go. Obviously, that's not how it works. If you want to use your old technology, you need a CD player. I chucked mine out 15 years ago, probably, so that's going to be no good. Old technology goes with the old speaker. If you want to use your new speaker, you need to connect it to your phone and fiddle with that, and that always takes ages, doesn't it? Anyway, you get the idea. The old and the new, they just don't work together. Or you might say, the new bouquet of fresh flowers, you're not going to put it in the fetid water that's been sitting for weeks on the mantle with the old decaying flowers in it. No. New flowers need new water. Well, no one changes the oil in their car without also putting in a new oil filter. So I'm told. I don't really know anything about cars. But new oil is for new oil filters. And all, you know, we, we can multiply examples, like I said. What Jesus is saying is that the new and the old just don't mix. They're incompatible. And in the context, of course, he's relating that to the fasting issue. This serious, solemn practice of the Jewish people in Jesus' day is part of their old way of doing things, which just doesn't fit with the new time of joy that Jesus has come to bring. They're just not compatible. But it's not just about fasting. Jesus is making a much bigger point here as well. He's saying that the mission he is on is something novel and groundbreaking. His message about the kingdom of God is something new. It's a radical departure from the Judaism of his day. And we see that play out throughout Mark's gospel again and again. We've seen it in the past couple of weeks. The Pharisees and the leaders of the old religious order, they just don't understand this new thing that Jesus is doing. A couple of weeks ago with the the paralyzed man, the, the scribes say, why does this fellow Jesus talk like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't get it. Last week with Matthew, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees try to squeeze Jesus into their old mold, but it just doesn't work like new wine in old wineskins. Because Jesus is breaking down these old religious structures. 
to bringing something new. Where the Pharisees in their old way excluded, we don't hang out with people like that. They're wretched, we don't want nothing to do with them. They, they sent them away. Where Pharisees did that, Jesus' new way brings all kinds of people in. He is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Where the Pharisees multiplied rules, where they fenced their rules with more rules just to make sure they didn't break the old rules, Jesus brings grace and forgiveness. He brings the knowledge that we can't meet the grade, that we're never going to be good enough, but that we don't have to because he paid the price for us. Where the Pharisees clung to this somber seriousness that true religion means being serious and, and, and never cracking a smile, Jesus has come to bring joy. We have something to sing about as Jesus' people because he's come to bring this, this rejoicing. The new and the old are just not compatible. Now, as we, as we come to a close, what does all this mean for us? This new and old dichotomy that Jesus brought is in itself now maybe looking a little old. This, this happened 2,000 years ago. But for us today, we need to keep hearing this new message because Jesus' new way is, is new in every generation. The old spirit of the Pharisee is still alive and well among us, perhaps in many of us. When we try to constrain Jesus in this straitjacket of our own religious ideas and structures and rules... On that day back then, people said, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? For us today, there might be all sorts of questions we ask. Why, why don't Jesus' disciples do X, Y, and Z that I think is the way to go? We have all sorts of ideas of what a true Christian should look like. Maybe for some in our culture, it's thinking that Christianity is basically about being nice and respectable. We avoid swearing, smoking, gambling. If you ever find yourself looking down your nose at other people and ask questions like, why are they wearing that to church? Or why haven't they got their investments sorted out in a more wise manner? Or why is their music like that? There's all sorts of ways we can look down our nose at people. And when the ugly specter of that spirit of judgmentalism rears in our hearts, we need to read these words of Jesus again. Because that is the old way of thinking that Jesus came to demolish our obsession with making up our own rules and thinking that we prove ourselves super godly by ticking off the boxes which we ourselves have decided on, those are exactly the things that Jesus calls the old way. And they are incompatible with the new way of joy and forgiveness that he has come to bring. Just as he came to be a friend of sinners and opened the doors wide to anyone who would come to him, so we need to get on board to live lives of peace and love and joy the new way that he has shown for us. That's really the big takeaway here. Don't go back to the old way of looking down on others, of demanding that everyone else meet your standards for what true spirituality looks like. Go with Jesus' new way. He's come to bring something radically new. But another more minor question we might have coming out of this passage is, what is the deal with fasting? And this is something that Jesus talks about here and something that Christians throughout the ages have practiced and wondered about, particularly in the time of Lent. Is it in our church tradition is a time where people have practiced fasting? What do we make of that? Is that something that we are called to today? I think it's worth pointing out that my, for what it's worth, my thinking has changed on this question just this very week as I've wrestled with this text and prepared and looked at what the rest of the Bible has to say. There are some people who look at Jesus' words in Mark 2 and think that he is saying fasting is not meant to be part of our Christian experience now. Because Jesus said he's going to be taken away, and then they will fast. And that's talking about Jesus' death while he's in the tomb. 
But after Jesus was raised from the dead, he tells his disciples, I'm with you always to the end of the age, and Jesus is with us by his spirit. So he was taken away for three days. That was the fasting time. And surely the disciples did lament and mourn when he was in the tomb. But now Jesus is with us. So once again, fasting is off the table. That's something like that is roughly what I used to think, at least up until a few days ago. But I've been persuaded that that's not the case. Because if that were right, then I take it what Jesus says would rule out what the early church practices and what we see them practicing in other parts of the New Testament after Jesus' ascension. Jesus has gone away for a while and he's ascended into heaven. He's not here with us. We're still in the time where the bridegroom is absent and he is with us in spirit. But we wait for him to come again in fullness. And in the interim, it seems that sometimes it is right and appropriate for the church to fast. Turn with me again in your your Bible, Acts chapter 13 is where we look at next, page 1107, 1107 in our Red Bibles. Here we see how Paul, a.k.a. Saul, is sent off on his first great missionary journey by the church in Antioch. Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as in Paul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We see here fasting is something that accompanies prayer in the early church, particularly on this occasion of seeking the Lord's will, of, of sending these men out on mission, this, this process of seeking assistance and, and divine guidance in a particular decision. It's worth saying that the New Testament never says that fasting is something Christians must do and must do according to a certain timetable. But we get a picture over here, we get an example of it as something that goes along with prayer as part of a, a process of discernment and making an important decision, leaning on the Lord. Remember, Jesus never said fasting's wrong. He just said it wasn't the right time when he was with them. But we see in other parts of the New Testament that sometimes it appears to be something good and beneficial for the Christian. And the point of it seems to be to take our eyes off the things of this world and to lean even into the the bodily sensation of need and hunger as an expression of our dependence upon God. Fasting is this very physical way of saying, even with our bodies, that we need and we want and we trust Jesus and his work and for him to provide. I personally confess I have never fasted. And the last couple of days I've been wondering if that should change. Maybe we don't because we are post-enlightenment, rationalistic Western people and the practice might feel a little superstitious, like as if you're trying to add some sort of power to your prayers, like almost like going on a hunger strike until God answers something like that. We may need to get back in touch with the Bible, which makes a much bigger deal out of our embodied experience. And then that, that experience of hunger is something that is an expression and, and a model and even a mirror of our spiritual dependence and need for God. Maybe this is a practice we particularly need to be reminded of in our age of gluttony, where food is one of the greatest idols out there. You head into any modern temple to the idol of food, restaurant, and see the people Instagramming their meals and whatever else we do. Food is something that people worship, and perhaps that's something that denial can help us to see that while we need it, we need God even more. 
whether you decide that this may be something that would be appropriate in a particular time of prayer and seeking God's will and asking his assistance in some situation, the one thing we must not do is make this some kind of Christian rule by which to judge one another. Because that's exactly the big point that Jesus is making, right? Whether we practice fasting or not, and we have, we have Christian freedom to decide whether that's right for us or not in any circumstance. But to make it a rule where we demand that other people jump the bar and meet the grade to meet our definition of true spirituality, that's the old way of thinking that Jesus has come to dismantle. In all sorts of circumstances, that's what we need to hear. This new way is not compatible with that. Go with Jesus' new way, that we would embrace the love and the joy and forgiveness that he has come to bring. And we're going to pray and give thanks that God has brought that kind of joy and made it possible and pray that he'd help us get on board with the new way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice and we marvel and we thank you that Jesus has come into the world bringing this new way, dismantling our our old human ways of approaching you with our list of good things we think we've done. Father, thank you for showing us that we cannot be good enough. And thank you for providing Jesus who was good enough and paid the price for us. We pray that you would help us more and more to see the world the way that Jesus sees it. Help us to put aside that old way and help us to embrace the, the joy and the life that he has come to bring us. In Jesus' name, amen.